speaking at a Baptist seminary, was his passion for the glory of Christ, uh, his deep desire for revival, uh, and his sense of the holiness of God. Um, Ray just recently retired as the founding pastor of Emmanuel Church, Nashville, uh, and has taken on a role in the Anglican Church of North America as a canon theologian. Uh, he's written a number of books that I've already mentioned, others besides that I can tell you about, um, but I think the most important thing is what I've just said, uh, is his deep love for Christ and his desire for the holiness of God. So there really isn't anyone better to speak to us on our theme tonight uh, on knowing the holy and loving God. Ray, we're glad you're here. Please come. Um, so, oh, there we go. So thank you, Pastor. And uh, yeah, the holiness of God and the love of God. We tend to think of these as polarities and differences in God. And we wonder which might be uppermost, especially toward me at my worst. So let's press into scripture and see what God himself has to say about God in his holiness and in his love. If you'll look at the book of Hosea, please. Hosea chapter 11, verses 8 and 9, two of my favorite verses in the Bible. Hosea chapter 11, verses 8 and 9. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zevoim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. Huh. God is morally serious and God is mercifully generous. God is both morally serious and mercifully generous. The Bible says so. And that God is morally serious, our consciences feel that. Our consciences 
intuitively understand that, resonate with that. But what our consciences struggle to believe is that this morally serious God is also mercifully generous. And if we don't feel confident about God in that way, feel confident way down deep that he is mercifully generous, this morally serious God is mercifully generous toward us. If we aren't sure about God in this way, our consciences will never leave us in peace. God understands our need. God speaks to our need. He helps us to know him more fully, more clearly, more confidently. At the cross of Christ, God displayed with clear finality his morally serious way to be mercifully generous. The Bible says that God is both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God never cuts corners. He never bends the rules. He never trivializes our sin. The smile of God is not an all-approving grin. God's favor upon us is better than that. In God's real mercy, Jesus lived the virtuous life we have not lived. He did that for us. And Jesus died the atoning death we don't want to die. And he did that for us. God enforced all his standards for us in Jesus, our substitute. So where do we come in? What's our part? Our part is to receive Jesus with the empty hands of faith. We finally accept that Jesus is our only justification before the all-holy God. And it's that simple faith, that collapsing into the arms of Jesus Christ, that giving up on ourselves, admitting the truths of our past, the likely failures of our future, and just hurling ourselves at Christ. That is all God asks of us. That is all we can do. And the empty hands of faith are God's ordained way for giving Jesus to us, all of Jesus, for all our need forever. I love how the 39 articles articulate our place with God now. We are accounted righteous before God only for the merit of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ by faith and not for our own works or deservings. Wherefore, that we are justified by faith only is a most wholesome doctrine and 
very full of comfort. So that being the case, Jesus being who he is, accomplishing what he accomplished, we receiving him in this simple, in this simple way, okay, now we can fight back. When that accusing voice within wages war against our peace and joy, and we fight with the comforts of the gospel. Very full of comfort. Now, of course, when the Holy Spirit himself alerts us in his mercifully specific way, by the way, the conviction of the Holy Spirit is always specific, speaking to a particular thought or feeling or word or utterance or action. Ray, what you thought just then, that was wrong. When the blessed Holy Spirit of God puts his finger on a wrong we have done, let's hurry to confess it to the Lord and return to him. We might also owe someone else an apology. We might owe them thanks, whatever. Let's, let's hurry to make that right too. How could it be otherwise? God is a morally serious person and we want to be that way too. But when not the Holy Spirit, but our own wretched consciences simply demean us and humiliate us and wound us and torment us and tell us we're just losers. We're just pond scum. And God should despise us. He would be wrong not to. The shaming regrets and merciless game film replays of our miserable consciences obliterating our hope, casting us into despair, that is when we can and may and must defy conscience and cling to Jesus and keep moving forward. God wants us to feel so forgiven that then we get traction for newness of life. So you and I must know that God is mercifully generous to bad people like us who hurl ourselves at Jesus in all our desperate need, both at our conversion and thereafter, as often as we need to. Right now, at this moment, the risen Christ above is not tired. And he is not tired of you. Why not dare to believe it and give the devil a really bad day? Here's the firm foundation of our confidence in Christ, our resilience in Christ. At the cross, God's morally serious conscience and his mercifully generous heart combined perfectly. Thanks to the cross, God's own conscience toward us is clear. He hasn't compromised. He didn't negotiate a settlement. God's grace toward us, the unserving, is His grace is to accomplish 
not to shave the radical edge off of his holiness. Unthinkable. But God's grace toward us, the undeserving, is to accomplish God's sacred purpose in Christ crucified. And if God feels good about his grace toward us, then we can feel good about God's grace toward us. Indeed, we have no right not to. And we don't make ourselves a little more worthy of his forgiveness by beating ourselves up and making ourselves miserable before we return to him in repentance. We simply receive Christ as God's holy gift to sinners as bad as we are. And then, with our hearts finally calming down and settling down and experiencing some peace, then, then we can get busy living for the Lord. That's what we really want. That's why you're here at church tonight. You love the Lord. You want to live well for Him. So, let, let's, let's also gently press into this a little bit further before we come to our text. Maybe tonight is God's night for you to allow the gospel into a, a very tender place in your heart and in your memory and in your conscience. Sometimes even, even though we love the Lord, we have received Christ, we are trusting Him. Even so, our consciences can still feel defiled because we're still grieving forsaken sins in the past. But they keep coming back. I'm talking about the thought that whispers to us, oh, sure, go ahead and believe the gospel, up to a point. But what about that sin you committed? What about that betrayal, that hypocrisy? What about you at your worst? God is too disgusted for, with that sin. Maybe he'll bless other people with peace and joy because they haven't acted out the way you have, but you sinned too far and you know it. Why not just admit that you have to settle for second-rate Christianity, and you should be grateful even for that. Our painful regrets would drag us back into shame again and again until we would give up and give in and just despair. We might smile on the outside, but our hearts struggle to believe that God in the totality of all that God is, God being a serious person, God being true to himself above all, God could not love the likes of me. And that is the very point at which God invites us through the gospel to dare to accept the wisdom of the Gallican Confession of 1559 that we, I love how it says this, that we resolve to be loved in Jesus Christ. Not that we resolve to become worthy. Not that we re-up and dissolve to be 
This time I really mean it. This time I'm going to be a serious Christian. No. We resolve to be loved in Jesus Christ according to the holiness and the loveliness of God. Now, Hosea 11, 8, and 9 reveals to us God's deepest heart. Not every passage in the Bible is equally profound in the sense that not, not every passage in the Bible takes us down to the very substratum of the depths of God. There are passages along the way that, go, that make, do a deep dive into the heart of God for us. This is one of those passages. And what's striking about this passage is its context because the book of Hosea takes no prisoners. This is a serious book. The book of Hosea is about God disciplining us and correcting us and rebuking us. It's all the more striking, therefore, that in that context, God stops and explains himself and opens up his heart down beneath his rebukes. The whole point of these verses is the depths of God when he confronts the depths of our sins. These verses are about how God feels when he says, okay, that, that sin-infected injury that you're suffering from, it's finally time for some healing. If I let this go on, it will kill you. So the time for healing has come. Now, we all understand what I'm talking about here. And, and God has confronted all of us along the way, hasn't he? Okay. What is happening in that intense experience? Are we getting our comeuppance? Or are we being drawn more deeply than ever before into God's very heart? Look what he says here. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zevoim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. The, the, the Hebrew wording there is remarkable. He's using words I had to look up. Then look how it changes so quickly. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man. It doesn't get any more simple than that. I am God and not man. I didn't have to look that up. The Holy One in your midst, I will not come in wrath. Now, Adma and Zevoim were suburbs of Sodom and Gomorrah. The prophet Ezekiel tells us why God's wrath destroyed those cities. It was their pride, excess of food, prosperous ease, heartless contempt for the poor and the needy, and so forth. And they refused to repent. 
they just, they just figured they knew better than God. They always had an excuse. They always had a comeback. So the wrath of God finally fell. Let's never think God doesn't have the stomach to punish an individual, a city, a nation, the world. Let's never think God doesn't have the nerve. Sodom and Gomorrah, for starters, prove that he does. But here God is saying to us, his covenant people, how could I do that to you? The whole reason he alludes to these other historic tragedies of judgment is we deserve what they got. But God takes into account something more than our sin. God sees the blood of Christ upon us. We have the Father's adoption, our new identity as His children. We have His Spirit indwelling us now and forever. We have that place our risen Lord is preparing for us. How could God forsake us now, even when we deserve it? If we have accepted the judgment of Jesus in our place, God will never forsake us, never give up and walk away in disgust, never disown us, never cast us off, never get fed up, God is all in with us, right down to his core being. That's what the passage is declaring so strongly and insisting upon overruling our guilty anxiety. Even when we defy our father and provoke him and force him to intervene and rescue us from our stubborn madness, still, Way down deep. He hates causing us pain. And he will never overcorrect us. And he will never leave us nor forsake us. That's the point of these verses. Look at verse 7. My people are bent on turning away from me. But what is God bent on? He is bent on not turning away from us. When we are foolish and wayward, God's heart is stirred and moved. His emotions well up within him. That's what these strong Hebrew words are saying. This is amazing language. God looks at his erring children with the anguish of love. The heart of God grieves the disciplines of God. When he says, my heart recoils within me, my compassion grows warm and tender, he's saying that this painful moment with his people is for him to put it in our categories now, to use our language, to paraphrase this. For him, it is gut-wrenching. This wording in the text is saying, that all of God's innermost energies come to a focal point exploding not in wrath, 
but in tenderness and compassion. Maybe sometimes we think God is just safely aloof, kind of above it all. In our arrogance, sometimes maybe we think he's the problem. Maybe sometimes we're, we're, we're thinking, you know, he's being nitpicky, he's overreacting. You know, the pain in my life, it's really his fault. And still he loves us. Because he is both morally serious and mercifully generous. He alone knows what is really at stake in our lives, in our existence. He alone sees the depths. He feels it keenly. And this is just who he is, always will be, and cannot not be. God will never betray his own character, his own commitments, his own deepest being, to which he has given to us through Christ. Maybe some of us are thinking, and it's a good question. Wait a minute, Ray. This language here in the Bible, okay, it appears now and then, but we all know this is figurative language. God doesn't have feelings. God is, is above all that, you know, upheaval and all that turmoil and change that we're subject to. That's, that's a good question. It's a good objection. My answer is, Okay, yes and no. God does not experience thoughts and feelings and evaluations and judgments and assessments the way we do. But God does experience thoughts and feelings and evaluations and judgments and assessments the way God does. John Frame, in his wonderful book, The Doctrine of God, puts it this way. There are emotions that are inappropriate to God. God is never homesick, anxious about tomorrow, inwardly troubled by divided intentions, compulsive, or addicted. He is not like human beings who are overcome by waves of passion, who make decisions on the basis of momentary feelings, and whose passions lead them to make false judgments. God doesn't have such kinds of emotions. But that doesn't mean that he, lacks, that he lacks the emotions ascribed to him in Scripture. Even in our defective natures now, why do we experience deep and profound thoughts, and feelings because we are created in God's image and likeness, in his transcendence. His feelings are all the more striking and glorious and significant because they come not from outside himself, but from within himself. His innermost depths are entirely self-caused and self-defined Deeply true to himself. So when his heart recoils within, 
when his compassion grows warm and tender, we aren't gaining insight into how we influence him. Even by our pitiable plight, we are being a gl given a glimpse into God's most authentic innermost being. We aren't reading figurative language here. We're being allowed into the depths of God's magnificent heart for us at our worst. Why does God feel so tenderly at this primal level of his being when we are arrogant and ungrateful and oblivious and all the rest? The reason for the heart of God is not in us at all. The reason, it's in verse 9, the reason for the heart of God is that he is God. Verse 9, I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim for, here's the reason why. I am God and not a man, the Holy One. As I said, the language of verse 8 is deep and surprising language. The language of verse 9 is simple and blunt. The reason for God's throbbing heart toward His clueless children is that He is God and not like us. The Holy One. It doesn't get more basic than that. We are shallow, we are vindictive, we are petty, we are changeable, we are short-tempered and trigger-happy. We love payback. Oh man, it feels good. But God is not like us. God is God, the Holy One, which means that unlike us, God is tenderly sensitive, deeply feeling. And he is not about to ungod himself. This is who he's going to be tomorrow. God's holiness includes his tenderness. We need to enlarge our category of holiness so that it, it, is, it isn't um, shrink-wrapped down to severity only. We can see here in the Bible that God's holiness, that is to say, His otherness, His pure Godness, His not-like-us-ness, means that He is heartfelt in ways we don't even understand. but we can trust. And that, that is the Holy One in our midst. That is the one who is active among us. The Holy One in your midst. He is moving among us. The risen Lord dealing with us. With me, with you, tonight in this room. God is the most tender-hearted person in the universe. God is the easiest person in the universe to get along with. The most near, the most sincere, the most engaged. 
Aristotle didn't see God that way. God was, to Aristotle, the unmoved mover. No feelings for us at all. One scholar put it this way. The God of Aristotle is little involved in the world. It would have been a sign of, inf of inferiority and imperfection for him to be involved. This reflected a typically Greek attitude. To be affected by something external to yourself is an indication of weakness. And in Aristotle's ideal of the great-minded man, this is very marked. He will not be cruel to his inferiors just because they are beneath such notice. But the God of the Bible is not an aloof aristocrat. He is present with us. Aware, sincere, understanding, compassionate, involved, tender. It's why the Bible says God is love. The Bible never says God is wrath. But it does say God is love. Why? Because love is his... true authentic heart just moving out toward us. Love is not a calculated decision on God's part. It's not a 51-49 tipping of the scales in our favor if we persuade him. Jonathan Edwards preached that in heaven... <laughs> We will be deluged in an ocean of the love of God because we will finally be in his presence. Now, the wrath of God is very real. The difference is this. His wrath has to be provoked. His love does not have to be provoked. When he rebukes us, his heart recoils, Hosea said. And we have all provoked the most sweet-natured person in the universe. And that fear inside us, that God doesn't really love us, not from his heart, but only, oh yeah, he loves us, but you know, like out of a sense of duty, or for some other less beautiful motive. Our evil thoughts about God tell us the opposite of who he really is. And our proud feeling that we are the sensitive ones, we are the ones who get it, we are the ones with a better understanding of what God should be like. <laughs> Can we just throw our heads back and laugh the laugh of faith at our ridiculous selves and love the Lord for a change? What if tonight, right now, by faith in what the Bible says, we dare to flat out believe that the heart of God is tender toward us, not holding out, but sympathetic even now at this moment, especially toward our worst regrets. That is the very point where he wants most to bring healing. What if Thomas Goodwin is right, the Puritan theologian, when he says that even our sins move Jesus more to pity than to anger? What if right now, not because of anything in us, but entirely because of his own gracious heart, Jesus sees us 
as his lovely and desirable bride and his heart cannot wait for our arrival on the wedding day. What if that is the real Jesus toward the real us? Could we not let go of every reason why, every reason in our minds why he should hate us? Just let it go. And we stop correcting him and stop telling him, you shouldn't love me. Stop loving me. Don't you see this? And instead we say, all right, Lord, you win. You know the truth about me. You know everything. And you love me still. <sighs> Hallelujah. I need your love. Especially there. God is morally serious and God is mercifully gracious. Generous. And these are not two competing impulses within the being of God. We can see here in Hosea 11, 8, and 9. In this bold self-disclosure from God that his holiness makes him divinely compassionate. We don't understand this, but we just accept it because here it is in the book of God and it's supremely clear in Jesus. The bad people flocked to him and the good people resented him. The bad people believed and they came alive. The good people couldn't let go of their goodness and they died way down deep. Let's stand among the bad people because that's where Jesus is with all his heart. So let me conclude with a thought from Martin Luther if any man struggled with conscience, it was Martin Luther. And when our consciences remind us of the sins that Jesus has died for, Luther shows us how to fight for joy. Here's how he counseled us. When the devil tells us we are sinners and therefore damned, we may answer, because you say I am a sinner, I will be righteous and saved. And then the devil will say, no, you will be damned. And I will reply, no, for I fly to Christ who has given himself for my sins. Therefore, Satan, you will not prevail against me when you try to terrify me by telling me how great my sins are and try to reduce me to heaviness, distrust, despair, hatred, contempt, and blasphemy. On the contrary, when you say, I am a sinner, you give me armor and weapons against yourself so that I can cut your throat with your own sword and tread you under my feet for Christ died for sinners. It is on his shoulders, not mine, that all my sins lie. So, devil, when you say, I am a sinner, you do not terrify me. You comfort me immeasurably. All right, now we know what to do. And that episode, whatever it might be, in your past, my past, when that rears its ugly head again, 
Now we know what to say. We're not going to take that anymore. We've got a life to live for the glory of Christ. We are fully equipped in every essential. Jesus Christ crucified for bad people like us. Now we're talking. All right, you gospel fighters. God bless you. Let's pray. <clears throat> now, our dear and blessed Lord, you're amazing. We love you. We're so glad to belong to you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. for Christ is just utterly infectious. Yeah. But yeah, the Luther. He should just read Luther to us. <laughs> so good.